Good morning, Harvest. I would uh, venture to say the move to a 10 o'clock service was a good thing. I love this. This is amazing. Um, hearing, being able to hear you sing. Now, I know that you were singing when we had the 9 and 11 service. It's just we were so spread apart, you couldn't hear it as well. But being over even in the corner and just hearing everyone lifting their voice and worshiping Jesus, that was really special for me this morning. Thank you for that. And I praise God that we can lift high the name of Jesus in this place. He's worthy, isn't he? He is worthy of praise, and I'm so grateful to be here. If you don't know me, um, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I, I'm loving this series in Christian Worldview. Are you? Uh, I should say, turn to Acts 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. We'll get there in a minute, but Acts 4. If you don't have a Bible, I think we have Bibles in the back. I don't know if we do the thing with ushers going down the rows yet with COVID. I don't know if that's changed or not, but if you need a Bible, let, you know, let's just do it. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Usher will get you a Bible at some point in the service, okay? But Acts 4, that's where we're going to be. But I would say this Christian Worldview series has been a really good one for me because we're, in a, we're living in a day and age where it's important to know what you believe. It's important to know what you believe. And currently, we're in the first half of the series talking about foundations of a Christian worldview. It's talking about these foundational doctrines that shape what it means to be a true biblical Christian. Uh, it's taking, what does the Bible actually say, and, and how does that shape how we now look at the world? Worldview. It, in fact, a Christian biblical worldview flies in direct opposition, directly in the face of secular humanistic worldview, which uh, looks at us first. We run everything through the lens of our feelings or through the lens of what we think is right um, as opposed to Scripture, which is the ultimate truth. And so uh, we've covered three different foundations so far, and today we're covering a fourth. Firstly, we've covered God. What is the biblical theology of who God is, his superiority, his greatness and holiness? And then the next week we covered us, who we are. Uh, our inferiority, our dependence, uh, our identity as image bearers of God. And then last week, you'd remember, we talked about sin, the recognition that there is a, a giant barrier between us and a righteous, holy God because of sin falling short, and the grave reality that the secular humanistic worldview doesn't want to label sin as sin. But we know there's awful consequences to sin that we see all over this world. And today we get to the solution of our sin problem, the subject of salvation. Specifically, how are we saved and how do we know that we're saved? And if you haven't had a chance to go back and uh, listen to the prior three foundations, I'd encourage you to get our app and listen to those. Um, they're all on there from both campuses. You can listen to those messages um, because this is, these are very important topics for us to have a firm foundation on as we live in this world that we live in. Today, salvation. I'm telling you what, this is this subject is what we live for as pastors. We live for this opportunity. In fact, when Dave uh, approached me a couple weeks back, he's like, hey, are you able to preach on the third? I'm like, sure. Uh, what are we preaching on? He's like, salvation. I'm like, done. Love it. This is what I live for. This is what, as pastors, as, as Christians, we live for, to be able to have the opportunity to preach the gospel to people, to listening ears. It's like an underhanded pitch. You know what I mean? An underhanded pitch. What's fun about underhanded pitches is in this context, we are, anytime we read God's word, it's an underhanded pitch to the Lord. Have any of you done an underhanded pitch to, say, a toddler learning how to play baseball? 
It's either really fun or it's terrifying. I remember when I was in eighth grade, we were, uh, it was gym class, and uh, we were all in line. We were doing the softball segment or whatever, and we were in line to bat. And the, uh, our gym teacher, this lady, was standing from me to you, underhand pitching softball to eighth grade boys. And a lot of us hadn't gone through our growth spurt yet. I hadn't. I didn't get there until like junior year of high school. That was just the way I was. But my buddy Mark definitely had already gone through his growth spurt, and he was a boss, man. He came up, and he was batting, and all of us in line, we were like, man, she should probably step back a little bit, but she never did. And lo and behold, she pitches the perfect underhand pitch to my buddy Mark, and he gets the best contact on that ball, line drive right to the orbit of her face. Broke every single bone around the right side of her face. Next thing we know, her head goes like this, blood just gushes out of her face. She falls to the ground screaming, and we're eighth graders. Like, what do we do? Like, get some leaves or something. What, we don't know. We had no idea what to do. And of course, we're outside, so we run to the windows of the, the, uh, the school trying to knock on the doors and the windows. They lock us out because that's what you do um, when you're in gym class in eighth grade. You can't just go back into the school easily. And so the teachers think we're pulling a prank or something like that. We're like, no, someone's dying. We need help. It was an underhanded pitch. Line drive to the face. And anytime we read God's word, especially with a certain subject in mind, we should realize that uh, there's a possibility that you're going to get a line drive to the face out of God's word. And today is no exception. With the subject of salvation, you're not going to struggle with clarity about what the Bible says about salvation. You're not going to struggle with clarity about, I wonder what God's word says, or maybe it's still a little confusing about how you're saved, or how do I know that I'm saved, because God's word is very clear, abundantly clear, and there's no wiggle room. It's like a laser beam, line drive to the face. When we ask God's word about what does it mean to be saved, it's very clear. And in fact, that is pretty offensive to some people to even say that. 1 Corinthians 1, verse uh, 18 through 20, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I like that word, thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so we, here we are. We're seated directly in the middle of the greatest dichotomy in human history. The same word preached today is going to be power for some in the room and folly for others. And my prayer is that this message would grip hearts, soften minds, open eyes, heal souls, that God would do that, that he would soften our hearts, that he would open our eyes. And so before we jump into the passage, I just want to pray over this time right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, just the, the fun newness of a new service time um, at our church here and seeing faces of people that we don't recognize or people we didn't even know go to this church and now seeing the body of Christ unified together, lifting high your name. And God, now as we hear from your word, I pray that my words would be your words and that your word would cut to the heart that your word would move boldly in this place. Lord, that I would disappear from this platform, but your word would shine very great and move hearts and minds and allow us to bow our knees to you as Savior and as Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Okay, Acts 4. I want to give you, that's where we're going to kind of live in Acts 4 a little bit, but I want to give you some context going into Acts 4. It's a very famous passage in Scripture about the lame man, the lame beggar being healed. You may remember this story mainly from a Sunday school song, and you'll know what I mean when I get there. But it's this guy, he, uh, and this is chapter 3. It's this guy, he's lame from birth. It's, he's crippled in the legs since birth, and he wants so much to be uh, in the temple that every single day for many, many years, he has been carried to the gates of the temple, the beautiful gates of the temple, as we come to find out, uh, to beg for alms or to beg for money as people are walking into the temple to worship. And for years, on a daily basis, he's brought to these doors, to the outer gates, looking into a place that because of his disability, he will never be able to go into. He will never be able to be in the context of the Jewish people, of God's people. He is ostracized from that simply because of his disability. And remember, in that time period, uh, many of the Jewish elite believed that if you were crippled, it was because of the sins of your parents. And so they would believe that because he was disabled, he was sinful and therefore could not be in the congregation of God's people. It was really sad. And so, lo and behold, Peter and John are going into the temple, and they go through this beautiful gate, and this man is sitting there begging, and Peter looks at him intently, it says in verse 6, and he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And of course, you remember the song, walking and leaping and praising God. Like, he, he's healed. He's healed from his ailment. He's healed from his disability. And he is walking and leaping and praising God. And that was a, uh, I would say, a little bit of a disturbance among the people who were there. In verse 9 it says, All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him. And it said they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. In verse 11, um, it says, while he, the lame man, clung to Peter and John. This is fun because he's like, you guys just healed me in the name of Jesus. And I believed, and I, I'm not leaving your side. I'm literally going to cling on to you because I, I couldn't walk, now I can walk. And you said the name of Jesus over my life, and you, uh, you were involved in Jesus healing me. I'm not leaving your side. And uh, the interesting thing about that is many people recognize this guy, and it says in verse 11 that people ran together. People, I mean, words spread out so quickly. People ran together to, uh, to them. And then Peter preaches a clear and simple gospel in the temple, in the temple courts regarding the lame man who was healed. In 3 verse 16, it says, uh, and his name, he's talking about Jesus, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And faith in, that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter then calls the people to repentance and to turn from their sin. And it's right about this time where a couple other players in the story enter the scene. It's the captain of the temple and the guards of the Sadducees showed up, and it says, we're greatly annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. There's a big crowd, and, and Peter and John are preaching the gospel about this Jesus. And do you know why they're greatly annoyed? It says it right there in the passage. It says they're greatly annoyed because they're preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you know anything about the Sadducees and the religious elite of the Sadducees, that sect of Judaism did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. So they're like, you can, you can say whatever you want about Jesus. Just don't say he rose from the dead. And so they were annoyed. And in their annoyance, it says they arrested Peter and John and held them until the next day to be tried in the council of the Jewish elite. And in the meantime, 
uh, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so just think about that for a moment. This lame man was healed. Everyone recognized him. He desired so much to be in the context of God's people, worshiping in God's temple, but he couldn't. He's healed. Everyone sees him. And 5,000 men, just think about how many people that actually was. It's just representing the men in this number. There was so many thousands of people came to know Jesus as their Savior in that one instance. And then we get to verse 5, and it says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the big question this morning is, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm saved? And often we ask this question in the setting of like a counseling room or soul care or in discipleship meetings with people over coffee, and sometimes people are going through crises in their life, and you ask them the question, okay, well, let's just start right at the, how do, you, how do you know you're saved? Are you saved? And can we just play the game that's like, I guess, popular on social media right now called um, wrong answers only? <laughs> Have you seen that? You see a picture of a watermelon, it's clearly a watermelon, and it's like, what is this? Wrong answers only, and people come up with the stupidest things, and apparently it's funny, okay? So, wrong answers only. How do I know I'm saved? Number one, well, I try to go to church as much as I can. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty consistent. Going to church doesn't save you. Going to church doesn't make you a believer in Jesus Christ any more than going to the, uh, the shop makes you an auto mechanic. Being in the context of an auto mechanic shop doesn't make you the mechanic. What about this one? Uh, well, I try my best to be a good person. Great. Doesn't save you. Well, I'm really just doing my best and hope God sees that. He sees you trying, but that doesn't save you. Well, I'm not into the same stuff as my non-Christian friends. Great, still doesn't save you. Well, I, I'm not doing drugs or at least the hard drugs. Good to know. Didn't know there was differences there. Still doesn't save you whether you do drugs or not. Can we just answer the question based on our passage today? How do I know I'm saved? Number one, my trust is in Christ alone. Alone. My trust is in Christ alone. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This is verse 11, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In order to know that you are saved, you need to know how to be saved. And the interesting thing about biblical salvation, about true salvation, is that it's exclusive. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by the grace of God willingly saving us, willingly going through the process of killing his son for us only. 
The gospel is simple and clear. You cannot add to it, nor can you take away from it. The gospel is very simple, but it does demand a great faith. It's a gift to us. The fact that God willingly knowing that we were separated from him because of our sin that stemmed all the way back to Adam and Eve when they ate of the fruit, creating this barrier between us and a holy God, knowing that we could never have that distance uh, replaced by anything else. We would never be able to have a relationship, a right relationship with God, apart from an act of God. And so in his grace, even from the beginning in Genesis 3, it talks about the Messiah who was going to crush the head of the enemy even while he was struck in the heel by the enemy enemy. That's the first uh, prophecy that we have in the Messiah. And so God, being faithful to his word, out of his grace, because of his love, he killed Jesus on our behalf because of our sin, putting him on the cross, dying the death that we deserved, and then he, he was buried and he rose from the dead three days later, defeating death, defeating sin, and then when he resurrected from the dead, when he ascended into heaven, he said, I'm gonna send you my helper, the Holy Spirit, to be able to live in us, the power of God himself, to be able to not only uh, allow us to live in forgiveness and to live in freedom, but transform us from one degree of glory to another for the glory of God and for the blessing that we have in this life for eternity. That's the gospel. It's exclusive. And it's interesting, a secular humanistic worldview doesn't like the exclusivity of the gospel. And, and, and the world has come up with some competing gospels to try to lure people into competing gospels. Can we talk about some of those? I just came up with alliterated names just to be helpful here. The first one, the first competing gospel is inclusive Ingrid. Inclusive Ingrid, this is the people, this is the viewpoint that all roads lead to Rome. It really doesn't matter what you believe, it only matters that you believe in something. And if you know anything of the history of our church, in fact, last night I was preaching in, Grant, or in Spring Lake, that building, not even a decade ago, was Inclusive Ingrid, an inclusive spiritual community. I remember walking in the doors of that building for the first time as we were looking at the option to uh, share space with that church. And we were seeing idols on the wall and we saw an Eastern religions room and we saw the originally a chapel that had a picture of Jesus in a stained glass window that was covered up with crepe paper because they didn't believe in the gospel. They wanted to make sure everyone was comfortable wherever they were as long as you weren't a Christian. And we remember walking through thinking like, we're not going to share space with you really well. Because we believe that Jesus is the only way. And lo and behold, we walked away from that deal. A lot of you are like, wait a minute, aren't we in that building? We, we are, because a, couple, a year later, they defaulted on their loan and the bank approached us and said, well, we got rid of all that stuff. Do you want to look at the building again? And we walked through it again, and that coldness, that weird heaviness wasn't there anymore. I'm telling you, talk to any of the elders or the pastors who were around in that time, and there was a night and day difference, a light and darkness difference to um, what it was like walking in that building because they had, they had lost their first love. And God left that place years ago when they decided to say, all roads lead to Rome. And you know why? Because God's word is very clear. The gospel is exclusive. 
Only Jesus saves. My trust is in Christ alone. Here's another one. Depressed Dennis. Depressed Dennis says, well, there are no roads. Just live your life and try to be a good person. And when you end, you just end. Right? It's this nihilistic viewpoint that when you die, you just die. And there's no afterlife. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's whatever. Just try to be a good person. Try not to kill anybody. And, you know, just do your best at that. Right? It's pretty depressing. Here's another one. Anxious Andy. This is, the per, this is the belief that you, you better hope to God that your good deeds weigh more than your bad deeds. And when you die, there's going to be this giant scale. And if, the, if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then he sends you back into a different form to try to figure it out until you eventually get to the point, who knows how many years, uh, generations, uh, thousands of years before you finally live a life where your good deeds outweigh your bad. But you'll never have assurance that you'll go anywhere. And lastly, religious Rick Religious Rick believes there's only one road, yes, but it's more like a tightrope. And if you fall off, good luck getting back on. And in fact, you have to strive really hard to hope that you're on the tightrope and you're balancing on this just razor-thin edge of of God's um, goodness to you. And if you fall off, hopefully you can get back on, but it requires a whole bunch of things to get back on the rope. And you really never, ever know if you're ever on the rope. This is where that 1 Corinthians passage gets real because the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. Do you know why? Because they reject the exclusivity of the gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which, uh, men, uh, among men by which we must be saved. The cost was too great to think that Jesus' sacrifice was an option. It's the only option. It's the only option because uh, it's the only option that takes our merit off the table. We cannot save ourselves. And apart from Jesus, we are hopeless. We can never climb the ladder good enough. We can never strive hard enough. We will never be able to do as much as we think we need to do to reach God. It's impossible apart from a work of God. And can we settle an argument right now? The world doesn't like the exclusive claim about Christianity because they claim that if it was that exclusive, then God would have to be unloving. You've heard this. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? How could a loving God not accept everyone? If God were truly loving, then he wouldn't condemn anyone. And it's this phrase going around at nauseum right now. You see all over. There's, well, well, true love is the acceptance of all things. Love is love. Beyond the fact that the logic of that statement is self-defeating because all things would include evil things, and I don't think the world would agree in a lot of the evil things in this world. But we have to remember, the Bible says God is love, yes, but it does not say anywhere in the Bible that love is God. It's a backward construct that our world has taken and made love in itself God and claiming that God follows that God of love when, in fact, God is love. And to make the argument that in order to be truly loving, God would accept and not condemn anyone is under the assumption that God is obligated and required to save people. You will not find a single passage in Scripture that talks about God feeling obligated to kill Jesus. You will not find a single passage in Scripture that says that God felt obligated or felt like he had to do something to save us. It's not there. But what you will find, however, is plenty of passages that show that our Messiah willingly went to the cross 
willingly went to his death. It said, Jesus humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Even when he was being led to his death, he didn't complain about it. He willingly went. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so when someone asks you this question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Can we just train ourselves to ask them this question? How could a God of justice allow anyone into heaven? How could a just God forgive anyone? And you know why I want you to train yourself to ask that question when someone asks you this? Because it tees you up perfectly to share the gospel to share what God's word actually says. There's an underlying belief in secular humanism that we are innocent until proven guilty when, as we learned last week about sin, we're guilty until given innocence. Do you see the difference? The entire construct is backward in this world. When we understand that we are hopeless, we start hopeless, but then God in his grace and his love and mercy gives us innocence, that changes everything. That innocence was given to us not out of obligation, not because God felt like he had to, but because he desired to, out of love, to fix our problem for us through Jesus dying in our place on the cross and rising again, defeating sin and death altogether. He then packages all of that into this wonderful package called the gospel and presents it to us and says, will you believe me? Will you receive this? It's free. I did all the work for you. You don't have to do anything to strive to save yourself. I did the work, and I'm giving it to you as a gift. And so I have to pause here for a moment because I can't be naive to think in this room that every one of you understands this perfectly. Do you believe him? Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord? Have you bowed the knee recognizing that it was your sin that put him on the cross? Do you recognize that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life is through him? Every other religion, every other form of religion strives so hard to work toward, to climb up to God, and never has the assurance that they make it to him. A biblical Christian worldview knows that salvation is only in Jesus Christ alone. And at this church, our elders and our staff and our pastors and our small group leaders and our children's ministry workers, we are all very, very um, committed to this foundation. You know, there's that phrase that goes, well, it's not a hill I would die on. It's not a hill I, that's not a hill I would die. This is a hill we would die on. And in fact, this is a hill that many people, generations upon generations in the church, have died on for the sake of saying, only Jesus saves. Here's a second way we know that we're saved. Number two, my faith is strengthened in adversity. My faith is strengthened in the trial. My faith is strengthened in the valley. And this is where we're going to go back up a little bit, a couple verses, and to verse 5. It says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? It's funny. Uh, following a work of God, a movement of God, if you will, is often... A hardship is often opposition, is often adversity. Have you seen that in your life? Like all of a sudden God does something amazing in your life. You have a breakthrough in your heart about something or you've been, uh, you've been really struggling through something and God just shows up in a powerful way and like that next week is miserable. Have you ever had that? I've had that. 
Do you know why that happens? It happens because anywhere there's a movement of God, anywhere there's momentum of a movement of God, remember this, there was 5,000 people just before this instance gripped to the heart to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And who is close behind trying to block it? Who is close behind trying to stop it? It's the enemy. We have a very real enemy who wants to stop and block any momentum in our lives that are, is pursuing the Lord. That enemy is very serious about his job trying to block this, and the enemy gets annoyed by the momentum that God allows to roll in our lives, and he tries to stop it in any way possible. And when we understand and we learn about the tactics of the enemy, it gives us a better ability to defend against those attacks when they come. And let me give you the first way, the pinnacle way that the enemy tries to attack us after a movement of God in our lives. Do you know what it is? It's fear. Something happens that he wants to make you scared he wants to make you fear. He wants to make you think that what you're doing is wrong and it's going to lead you to something that you're scared of. In, in, in fact, in 1 Peter, we know this passage pretty well. It says, The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know what's interesting about that analogy in Scripture? Lions don't roar when they hunt, except for one occasion. Do you know what it is? It's when they hunt in packs and they send one lion out here to roar really loud to scare the prey into the hiding lions that are going to overtake it. Isn't that an amazing picture? So if you understood now, that's the picture that God's word gives us about the enemy attacking us in our lives. So the next time something roars at us in the face, what do we do? We can walk through the lion. We walk through the fear. Do you know why? Because it says in Scripture that he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. And because Jesus died for us on the cross, we don't have to live in submission to the enemy. We live in submission to the Lord. And we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead alive in us to look at the lion and be like, you're nothing. We can walk through you. Jesus died for me. I have the power of Christ in me. I can walk right through you. It's interesting, the, the council gathered together to try Peter and John, hoping to scare them to death, to stop the movement of Christ and the gospel in that place. And notice who the players are. This is so fascinating. I didn't know, I didn't, I, I've never recognized this up until studying this. The same players that are trying uh, Peter and John were the same people that tried Jesus and then condemned him to death. Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and and uh, the, the people of the high priestly family. It's the same people. And so Peter John could have thought in that moment, it's like, oh no, we're dead. Like we're now in the same situation Jesus was in and I know how the story goes. Right after this, they're gonna flog us and then they're gonna send us to the cross and we're going to die. But then again, think about it this way. They just saw God heal a man who was crippled since birth through the name of Jesus. They just saw over 5,000 people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and saving faith in Jesus Christ uh, through a very simple and concise presentation of what the gospel is. And, and, and they saw people bow the knee to the Lord. And so maybe instead of being scared, they looked at that lion trying to scare them and they were like, wow, um, maybe they actually... Uh, are using that as confirmation of what God is doing in their lives. Maybe that's something that is actually strengthening their faith because they understand when God does something, the enemy wants to block it. We say all the time to the people who are getting baptized at our church, it's like, okay, buckle up this week. 
Something big happened and you declared your faith in Jesus Christ in the context, the public context of our church. And so buckle up this week. The enemy's going to be close behind trying to ruin your week. And we hear it all the time. It happens. It happens in our lives. What if we prepared for it? What if even maybe after today in this service when we worship the Lord and maybe there's a movement of God and he welled up in your soul as we worshiped God together, just this renewed sense of his goodness and his grace and his mercy in our lives and we leave here on cloud nine and then something happens. What if we prepared for that thing? It's kind of like weightlifting. As you can, as you can tell, I'm a weightlifter. Why'd you laugh? That's so mean. Okay, as you can tell, Marty, Pastor Marty lifts weights, okay? So when you weight lift, what do you have to do in order to grow muscle? What do you have to do in order to get stronger? You have to add more weight to the bar, right? It is God's grace to add more weight to the bar of our lives because he knows when he allows just a little bit more weight and he gives us the power to get through that little bit more weight. When he adds a little bit more weight, that allows us to endure out of obedience. And in that obedience, through adversity, honoring and glorifying the Lord through that valley, through that trial, it leads to his glory because he knows when we glorify him, we are most blessed in glorifying him, and it leads to our blessing. And so how do I know that I'm saved? It's only through Jesus. Secondly, my faith is confirmed and strengthened when the opposition hits. And here's the third thing. My confidence in Jesus' work, past and present. My confidence is in Jesus' work, past and present. Pick up here in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Put yourself in that scenario. Put yourself in the room, like a fly on the wall in the room. And just, I would like to think that Peter, when he's saying this, first of all, he has boldness because the Spirit filled him. And he says this, he's like, let it be known to you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I just imagine he's looking at the Pharisees when he says that because those were the people who opposed Jesus in his, in his weekly ministry all the time, being there, the Pharisees opposed. Who are you? What power are you doing? He's like, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then looking at the high priest whom you crucified, and then just because he's a boss, he looks at the Sadducees like, uh, who God raised from the dead. Peter is a boss, man. It, 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 did, did we forget that just months earlier, Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times just outside of these walls that he's in right now to a servant girl? He denied Jesus, and now he's in talking to the same people that Jesus, um, uh, that Jesus was condemned by, and he's just owning the room. What made the difference? It says it in verse 8. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand the Holy Spirit is the power of God himself speaking so boldly through people and confirming, the, or through Peter, confirming the work of Jesus in the context of this man's healing. And what's interesting is the indwelling Holy Spirit 
That happened because Jesus ascended. When Jesus ascended, he said, don't worry, I'm going to send to you my helper who is going to be with you and who is going to speak for you in the time of trial, who is going to strengthen you and be the same power that raised me from the dead is going to be alive in you. I will be with you to the end of the age, it says in um, the Great Commission. When Jesus ascended, we got his spirit. And that changed everything for Peter because through the power of the spirit, it transformed that coward into a commander. And he commanded that room and just preached so boldly to the greatest opposition of that time that Jesus' work was accomplished in this man's life. It was accomplished in the past when he died, and he is continually accomplishing uh, his work through the Spirit. It's interesting, Jesus' work is in two forms in our lives, too. It's in his completed work that he died for us. He took our place on the cross. He settled that debt on our behalf. We now have a right relationship with God once and for all because of Jesus' sacrifice and rising from the dead, but also his continual work. So his completed and his continual work daily be through his spirit uh, because of his resurrection, uh, sealing our ultimate victory. Uh, he, his spirit now is alive in us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And so the fruit of salvation in Jesus Christ is transformation. That transformation is impossible for people to refute in us. Because did you know this? Your testimony can't be argued against. I mean, I'm looking at many people in the room who I know personally who have a testimony of how Jesus transformed you from blind to seeing, from death to life, from lame to leaping. And I know you well enough to know that you're like, no one could tell me that didn't happen in my life. Do you know why? Because your testimony leaves the opposition speechless. That's the big idea that we have this morning. It's, it's this. It is impossible to argue with a transformed life. In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed and standing beside them, think about this for a minute. The man who was healed, even after they got arrested, was like, I'm still going with you. I've been crippled for so long, I haven't ever even been in the gates of the temple. Now I get to go inside the temple. I'm going with you. He's standing there. It says they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that, they may, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to, to speak no more of this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, again, what a boss. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, 40 years sitting at the, the gate of the temple, crippled, being judged by the Pharisees. Everyone knew who this guy was. And everyone understood that God did a mighty work in this man, and they could not refute it. They could not refute his testimony. It's impossible to argue with a transformed life. And by the way, Jesus is still transforming lives today. I want you to turn your attention to the screen. When I first met John, it was when I was living in Grand Rapids. It's not my own. I had 
faith in the Lord, but I wasn't really living it out completely. Kind of put on the back burner for the time being while I was there. You know, you hear in the movies, like you see the other person across the room. In that moment that we met, you could just feel that something was different. There was just something different about him that I really was kind of drawn to. And from there, we kind of started hanging out and seeing each other. It just kind of started to grow into something more. I fought it a little bit, didn't really want a relationship. We started dating and hanging out more. I kind of did some self-reflection at that point where I was like, I'm living my life right now and I'm getting into this relationship where I could see myself maybe getting married someday now. It made me think about my relationship with God and what that would look like in marriage as well. That's when it flipped for me and that's something that I really wanted to work on my relationship with God and I wanted that to be a central focus in my marriage. We sat down one day and she's like, hey, out of a husband, I want somebody that's a believer. I want somebody that's gonna lead me. And I basically told her, I'm never gonna believe in God. From there, it kind of hit me hard because I did start to like him quite a bit but I knew that for me personally moving forward with my relationship with God, that I couldn't move forward in a relationship with John, so we broke things off. The drinking, the drugs, and the sex is where I was at and what I lived my life for. I was addicted to like my own self-desire, and it was ruining me, and I didn't even know it was ruining me. Behold, one of my one of my good friends, he actually started going to church and was inviting me to go. So I started going to church with him. Went there a couple times and God, how God is, just just was running after me hard and I didn't even know it. A couple months down the road, I kind of noticed that John was going to church with his friends and reached out to me after that and we got back together at that point and started going to church together. And I noticed a change in him. So I thought, let's give this a shot. Like, let's see where this leads. At that point though, like I was still wrestling with so many demons and just putting on a fake facade to everybody around me. We got plugged into Harvest and we had to make the decision. This is our home church and we're gonna get plugged in in this church. We signed up for a small group and we got put in the Cook's small group. It was good for us because we got insight into what marriage should be. My facade just honestly continued though. Like it just continued through that whole small group process. I was pursuing other relationships on like Snapchat. I was partying and going out. I was like, you know what? Like this is the girl I want to marry. So I proposed. Once we got engaged, that was the that was the point where I really said, you know, I need to take this God thing serious. Up until that point, I really was trying to do things under my own strength. And then that's when all of my sin that I had been hiding came to the light. A girl that I had cheated on Cassidy with reached out to her and was like hey, I slept with your fiance like six months ago. I found out things that John had done before we got engaged. It was all brought to light to me, like floodgates just opened up like thing after thing. It rocked me pretty hard because here I am getting engaged, what was supposed to be the most like happy time <laughs> in a relationship. And it ended up being the most scary, fearful times for me because I didn't know what the future held for us.
I saw John and I saw the changes he was making and it was good. And then to be brought back to times where it wasn't good, I don't know, it just was a really weird, um, hard thing for me to go through. I really felt alone because I didn't know what to do. It made me really reach out and cry out to God and to really just put my faith and trust in Him and grasp onto Him. And through that, He brought me people who could help us. We started doing soul care. Casty was trying to decide, like, do I even want this relationship anymore? I can just remember going into that first soul care meeting just like I had walls built up around my heart and had made up my, my mind when I went in there that I was just gonna still continue to deny everything and just try and manipulate people. God just kept chasing me and eventually was breaking those walls down and I can remember the second the second soul care meeting we went into I was just completely broken just from all of my sin and I had a conversation with Dan he said that I needed to just confess everything to Cassidy whatever there was to confess I just needed to confess any any sins against her or God that's what I did. Christy asked me one question. She was like, Cassie, do you see a change in John? And I'm like, yes, I do. I see that. And I had chose at that point to keep moving forward with it because I believed in what God could do in his life. At that point, the grace that Cassidy showed me was so astounding, honestly. I just couldn't understand how a person could be hurt so badly and still continue to show grace. And I think that that's just a good picture of what who our God is and a little snippet of the amount of grace that he has for all of us. It made me realize, like, who am I to judge somebody else for their sins? Every sin is the same at the foot of the cross. While it may hurt a lot and there might be sin that hurts you more than others, like his sin is no different than mine. If God can forgive my sins, if I'm called to be like Christ, like I'm called to forgive. We got married and my sins were all known to Cassidy. Allowed our marriage to be built upon the rock, upon a solid foundation. And without that foundation, I don't know where we would be at right now. gotten married he's been such a strong um leader for us um spiritually and always pointing me back to christ and like really just has shown that relationship with christ and led our family in that seeing how god worked through those situations that is what we're thankful for that god pulled us out of um those hard times just thankful that god brought us out of that and yeah, brought us both to like a, a flourishing, fruitful, real relationship with him. Isn't that isn't that awesome? God's faithfulness in transforming uh, John and Cass's lives, you can't take that from them. And if you have a testimony this morning of Christ transforming you, no one can take that from you. And in fact, that's the greatest news that you can share with your friends and your family members who don't believe in Jesus to say, I have been transformed from death to life because of what Jesus has done. But I close with this question, have you? 
And if there's anyone in the room today that may still be questioning what this means or maybe questioning what this means for their lives specifically or how do, I, uh, how do I recognize Christ as my Savior, can I simplify it for you? It's receiving the gift that he gave us, believing in him. To believe in Jesus as your Savior changes what you do, changes everything of who you are. Because when he is Lord of your life, you want nothing more than to glorify him because of what he's done for you. And we would love the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to talk more about this process through this with you. After the service, we're going to have pastors and elders up front. We would love for you to take advantage of that, to be able to uh, work this out with you and to convince you even more, maybe even with the testimonies that we have as pastors of our lives of what God has done and what Christ has saved us from because you are not too far gone. You can't run so far away where God isn't right behind you the second you turn around. I loved that in the video when Johnny was like, I was running and I just, I just wanted to keep running, but God was running faster yet because that is our God, willingly, out of his love, desiring to have a relationship with you. And he made that way possible through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for just the power of who you are. And God, we're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful for your son who took our place and gives us your power to be able to navigate this life, even in the world that we live in right now, which is such a hard world to live in. But God, we know that you are faithful and you help us and you are a good and faithful and gracious God. I pray, Lord, for anybody in the room right now whose heart is going crazy, wondering what that feeling is, that conviction in their life, whatever it's sin or something that is making them feel uncomfortable right now. God, I just pray that you would humble their hearts to be able to bring that sin to the foot of the cross and see it settled and forgiven through what you've done. God, you are a good God. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.